Hi, and welcome to Tyndall Talks. In this episode, myself, Charlotte Brown, and my colleague, James Mason, both PhD researchers at Tyndall Manchester, speak with the director of the Tyndall Centre, Professor Robert Nichols. We discuss the centre's 20-year history and some of its big achievements in this time. Also discuss Robert's work on sea level rise, what this means for the UK, and areas of the world with some of the most vulnerable populations. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 crisis. So in this episode, Robert talks about some events which were due to take place in 2020 and that were sadly postponed. Despite this, he offers a really interesting insight into sea level rise. I hope you enjoy. So firstly, who are the Tyndall Centre and what do we do? Well, the Tyndall Centre, I think, is an interesting organisation. It's, it's a, it's a uh, consortium of four universities, the University of East Anglia, the, uh, Manchester University, Cardiff University and uh, Newcastle University. And it looks at climate change from a number of different perspectives. So there's kind of four overarching themes one is about accelerating social transitions and really trying to look, looking at how, how, how people's behavior can change towards sort of low carbon behaviors, overcoming poverty um, with climate action. So really looking at development issues around and, and how climate change maybe will impact the poor. Building up resilience, which is really looking at adaptation to climate change. And lastly, um, reaching zero emissions. So thinking about how we can actually mitigate climate change and actually stop the emissions. And I think the nice thing about the climate, about, about Tyndall Centre is that it's doing all these things together. So looking at the interaction between all these different issues. So part of the reason that we're doing this is because of the 20th anniversary. You've been working with the Tyndall Centre for quite some time much longer than me or James. How have you seen that it's changed over the last 20 years? Are there any big events or...? Well, I think Tyndall was a really trailblazing organisation because it it was really the first time that you brought together sort of like the engineering, the natural science and the social science into one centre to look at climate change in a very integrated way. Before that, often it had been rather more sectoral, people looking maybe just at climate change as a phenomenon, what have you. Um, And Tyndall actually um, created an awful lot of integrated analysis. And I think that was really the exciting thing. When I came into Tyndall, um, I was working on what was called the Tyndall Coastal Simulator. And we built a, um, we did an analysis of um, how the coast, particularly of Norfolk, might change um, over the next hundred years from a number of different viewpoints, and including a very strong social uh, dimension um, of that change, and that had never really been done before. So I think that that was that was that was that was really exciting, and I think Tyndall has continued on in that vein very strongly for the um, ever since. And so it's been it's been quite trailblazing. One of the Tyndall Centre's most influential projects has been its research on carbon budgets. This concept relates to the idea that emitting carbon dioxide increases the temperature of the Earth. Carbon budgets use science to set a limit on the amount of carbon we can emit before the Earth reaches a certain temperature. One of the one of the really sort of big uh, contributions has been in providing the sort of the, the information on the global um, carbon uh, budget that Corinne has sort of led from Tyndall, in that uh, this is now released on an annual basis. Um, 
before um, before the COP. I mean, it often appears on the on the national news uh, and, and, and newspapers, and really sets a sort of benchmark uh, for what's happening. And it, it is discussed very widely and brings out the point: the you know the the concentrations of CO two are going up and then but are they going up faster or are they slowing etc so, so so it's it's really a great way of communicating our science i think to the public and i should say that not in tyndall but in in a sort of another a process i'm involved in to do with sea level they're now starting to produce sea level budgets so you can see that the idea is also being emulated elsewhere and is being found to be an effective way of really getting uh, attention to the issue and keeping pressure up for action. One of the good things about what's been happening more recently is the uh, huge amounts of attention that the climate crisis is getting. Um, and I guess all the different climate emergencies that have been declared around the world. So sort of in light of this, what do you think the future direction of to the Tyndall Centre is and how do you see us contributing to the, uh, to, to the direction of the, the climate change agenda? Well, I think there's probably two key elements to to this. I think clearly it's the next 10 years is very critical in terms of emissions and emission reductions. And so really, I think looking at um, the emissions, the emission reductions that have been promised, how, let's make sure that these are actually delivered. That's kind of one, one really important thing. And I think from a research organization's point of view, I think it's interesting to look at how we can support and um, promote and encourage um, that action and then building on that to do more than that. So that's, that's not enough. But I think it's important that people, you know, it's, it's a long-term process, it's a long-term game, this, and we have to sustain um, action if we're going to be successful. The other sort of element I think that's really important is adaptation. Um, some climate change is unavoidable, um, and therefore we need to be thinking about how we will adapt to that. And maybe we're not terribly well adapted to today's climate as well. So I think we can maybe improve on how we manage things as well. And linking to the wider issue, I think, of sustainability, which maybe goes beyond climate change and thinking about how all these issues think, link together. So the role of climate in the sustainability d debate, I think. So those, those are the sort of areas I think that Tyndall can make a contribution and will do. So... Like I said, 20th anniversary. Are there any big events or any key ways that we're going to be celebrating that over the next year? Well, we're, we're actively sort of planning that at the moment. And there are a number of different things that are going to happen. We're going to have a series of blogs, I think, looking at, looking at what sort of Tyndall has accomplished, which will be... Um, which will be put out over the year. Um, we'll have an event probably in Westminster where we'll actually um, highlight Tyndall research probably in June. We'll have an assembly in Cardiff in September where we'll sort of can really celebrate the 20th anniversary and, and engage um I think particularly with the with the devolved administration in Wales, but more widely with with the community, um, the communities across the UK, and of course there's COP uh, in in Glasgow. So um, there'll certainly be a, an important role for Tyndall in engaging and promoting our work at the COP. So lots of exciting things planned for this year. You mentioned COP, which stands for Conference of the Parties, and for those of you who don't know. COP is a yearly gathering of important representatives from countries around the world um, and they discuss progress that's been made on 
dealing with climate change. This year is being held in Glasgow. Okay, so we'll talk a bit more about your actual research now, Robert. You do about the impacts of sea level rise on coastal areas. Um, Can you quite simply just tell us what causes sea level rise? Well, sea level rise um, is linked to climate change by um, two sort of key processes. Um, A warming earth um, and a a warming ocean leads to thermal expansion of seawater. So basically the same mass occupies a larger volume. So as you you, you warm the ocean up, it's sort of, and and thinking thinking of a a sort of bucket, you warm a bucket up, it would rise a little bit. So the water is going to spill onto the land nearby. Um, And the second process, which is probably the one people tend to think of um, more readily, is the melting of ice. So the small glaciers in um, places like the Alps and the Rockies, there's about 60 centimetres of sea level rise equivalent in the small glaciers. Greenland, which is a massive feature, about seven metres of potential sea level rise if it all melted. And Antarctica, which is more like 70 metres of sea level rise if it all melted. Now, we don't expect it all to melt tomorrow, but it, but, but potentially, you know, if, if all the ice melted, there'd be about sort of 77, something like that, metres of sea level rise globally. Yeah, and that gets a lot of attention in, in the news, doesn't it? in terms of how devastating the impacts could be from Greenland melting. Um, So to actually track how the sea level is changing due to climate change, I assume we need to know the level it was in the past. So how do scientists know what the sea level used to be before they actually started measuring it? Well, um, one of the the kind of best ways, I suppose, of doing it at one particular place are tide gauges. Now, these would have been put in originally for navigation. They were to measure low and high tide. And essentially, it was about not ships not running aground, you know. Uh, but, but they've actually produced a, a wonderful climatological record. And there are some tide gauges that go back to the 1700s in places like Stockholm. There's only a few places. Liverpool has data going back to that time period. As you move forward, you get more and more um, of these tide gauges. And so just looking at one tide gauge, you can you can look at the mean. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, so it's measuring continuously as the tide comes in and goes out. So if you start to average, you can start to look at like maybe a monthly mean of sea level, an annual mean, and often we work with annual means. And so we, if we plot these, you observe at an indiv- individual tide gauge that the sea level is rising in most parts um, of the world. And then with datums, you can start to bring all that data together into, in, into maybe common a common and shared understanding. There are other ways of measuring sea level. More recently, since about 1993, we have Topex Poseidon, so there's a satellite platform. So now we tie gauges only give you measurements of particular points. So Topex Poseidon measures the sea everywhere, the sea level everywhere. And actually going back before tide gauges, um, there have been attempts to use things like um, fossils and sort of evidence from salt marshes, corals, etc. And people have actually been able to construct sea levels back. And the overall message from all this is that sea levels were fairly stable up until the middle of the 19th century. Then they started to rise slowly and they've been sort of accelerating steadily. Not very fast, but there's been a sort of steady acceleration since. So now sea levels are rising maybe three or four millimetres per year. 
Wow. So there are lots of ways that you can actually measure historic sea level rise. Um, you mentioned the satellite Topex Poseidon. So I actually use satellite data quite a lot in my research and find it really interesting how it works. Like As I'm sure you know, the satellite sends radio waves to the Earth's surface, which bounce back, essentially like bouncing a ball. And you can calculate changes in the height of the sea from the different times it takes for the radio wave to return. Um, I think it's really cool how it works. So moving on, can you now talk about some of the problems that occur from sea level rise? Well, sea level rise causes impacts in a number of different ways. The most obvious impact is really submergence and flooding. I think people instinctively, you, know, you see images in the press of cities underwater as sort of the uh, expressing the, the threat of sea level rise. So that's that, that's one sort of, and I think that's quite an important I- impact. Um, there's also erosion. So that's a, erosion and flooding, well, they're different because erosion is the physical removal of material. So ra- rather than submerging, um, it's actually uh, the sea reshaping the um, interface the coastal interface. So it causes sand to be carried offshore. And so we, we, you, get, you get a loss of material. So you see erosion of cliffs, beaches, marshes. That's that's a big threat. And then also, um, th- that also affects um, habitats. So things like salt, you know, many of those things I just described are also quite highly valued because of their natural value. And then lastly, um, salinization. So um, if the sea gets higher, that salt water will push further inland, both in the surface waters and into the groundwater. So that means that can destroy sort of water resources. So really, in, in sort of summary, those are the sort of four big impacts of sea level rise. And what areas of the world would be most likely to be impacted by that? Well, the areas that are most likely to be impacted are the sort of low-lying areas. I mean, so it'll be depends on the sort of on gradients, shall we say. Um, if you live on top of a cliff, you're fairly probably fairly immune to sea level rise unless the cliff is, 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 is eroded. Deltas are one of the areas vulnerable to sea level rise. They're areas of low-lying land where rivers flow into the sea. So deltas are one particular area that one's particularly concerned about. They hold 7% of the world's population. Um, and why is that? Well, they're, they're, they're great places for agriculture. So the Nile, Bangladesh are sort of two examples where you have very high population densities uh, and people live feeding a family on quite small areas of land with subsistence agriculture. Um, so these are areas where small changes in water level can have very profound uh, effects. Another area of concern are the small islands, um, particularly the ones like Mo- the Maldives that are atoll nations. The, the Maldives, the highest point's about 2.4 metres above sea level. So it's they are literally wave-formed piles of sort of, of, of coral sand and coral sort of pebbles. Um, and so these areas are, are, are inherently pretty vulnerable anyway. So, I mean, sea level can really push them over the brink. And all small islands, even the ones that are higher, all activity tends, tends to happen around the coast. So those are two places that, that are particularly threatened. And then I suppose coastal cities, by the concentration of people, um, are also an area of concern. Yeah, so it really sounds like a diverse range of people who will be, who will be affected by it. Um, and I'm, I'm in, interested to know what the role of mitigation can play. So say we immediately curb global greenhouse gas emissions, how much can we actually mitigate these impacts? And then for the impacts that do occur, how do we then adapt? 
The issue of mitigation is an interesting one. Um, there's just been an IPCC report published, a special report on the oceans and cryosphere, um, which was sort of looking at this issue. And um, they sort of came to the conclusion, I think, based on good science. I mean, I think this, a lot of the science has been there for a while, but they've really drawn it together and given that a very clear message that um, if we mitigate, we reduce sea level rise, but we don't stop it. There is, in effect, a commitment to sea level rise um, just due to the emissions of greenhouse gases that have happened today, up to today. And why is that? Well, the ocean um, is rising because of warming. And actually, the ocean has a time scale of about 6,000 years. And so only the surface of the ocean has really seen the warming that has happened today. So the rest of the ocean will, will warm over timescales of hundreds, maybe thousands of years, and that will lead to further thermal expansion, so further sea level rise. And secondly, the ice sheets and the glaciers, um, but particularly the ice sheets, take a long time also to reach an equilibrium. So they will take a while to settle to a stable climate. So that means that we expect to see sea level rising um, much, much more slowly um, than if we didn't mitigate. So there's a big benefit to mitigation, but we shouldn't think that we can stop sea level rise and therefore not worry about it. I think one way that we often talk about it is to have mitigation to make sea level manageable so that you can adapt to the residual problem. So a lot of our listeners will be in the UK. So bringing it back to the UK, what kind of impacts are we likely to see here? And what are the mitigation adaption strategies that we're either currently using or that need to be implemented to deal with that problem? Um, in the UK, I mean, all the problems that I said globally um, will, will occur to some degree. But I think probably flooding is a very big um, issue because we have so many people living around our coast and sort of London and if I say the Thames Barrier probably most people an image comes into their mind um, you know that's sort of showing the need that we have a we have a flood risk today we've had to build all this infrastructure to protect London and so with sea level rise we're going to have to do um, well there's the threat's going to rise and either we have to move inland or we have to do more adaptation so there's a choice and that's that's a general that's general round uh, round the whole coast and I think so so under uh, 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 under sea level rise we have these impacts. I think in places like London, we will continue to adapt with sort of protective approaches. But in many other places, we'll have to think about um, more, a more, a more retreat approach um, because, uh, because we can't really afford to protect everywhere. So it's, so it's going to mean big changes to, the, to, to how we manage our coast. And I, but it's an, it's an interesting point. I think it's an important point. It's not just the sea level rising and we're sort of responding passively. This is an interaction between sea level and how we manage our coast. And our policymaking process in the UK, in sort of people like the Environment Agency, are very actively engaged with this issue. And I've been working with them over the last, you know, few, year, few years and decades of my life. So as you've just mentioned, uh, over the past 30 years that you've been, been involved in this research, uh, do you have any particular highlight that stands out for you? Um, well, actually, an, an interesting place to work was Bangladesh. Move to move away from the UK. We did um, work over the last 10 years looking at the future of um, coastal Bangladesh 
um, and really trying to understand not just how sea level rise would affect the coast, but really all the kind of changes. So we were looking at the upstream river flows uh, and how they might change. We were also um, looking at, um, and we looked at CO2 fertilization because it, it, I mean, because as you get higher CO2 concentrations, actually, um, that that actually causes crop yields to rise. So there are, there are, again, it's not it's not all bad. There are conflicting processes which you need to take into account to really understand um, what will happen. And there are also issues around. Um, you know, new crop varieties. You, you, it was quite. It was quite a detailed sort of study, and I think it, it was very interesting. Bangladesh is often seen as a place where you have a map, you know, showing the one meter contour, and it's almost kind of written off. Um, and this brought out how complex um, the changes are, and that while climate change is a huge threat, there were quite a few adaptations that were available in Bangladesh to the Bangladesh people to do something about this. And, and so I think, and I hope that it will actually sort of be empowering to them to sort of help to unpick the choices that they face uh, in the future and how they can help to shape the world that they would like to live in. So just some slightly bigger, more overarching questions, which are a little bit quick fire, think on your feet. And we will be asking these questions to all of our guests. So we'll hopefully get some interesting, perhaps conflicting answers. Um, so first of all, if you could implement one policy that's related to climate change, what would it be? I think the one thing I would do is really to try and make sure that the price of carbon was a realistic price. So, you know, sort of £100 Per, per sort of ton, ton kind of comes out as the sort as the sort of kind of number which is which is just uh, much much higher than um, any of the numbers that are actually really used on the sort of markets at the present time, and that would I think have a real big effect on behaviour. And also, if people are going to sort of think about like offsetting it, what have you, it really brings home the costs in a realistic way. So that's the, that's that's what I would like to see. Okay, so if there was an individual action that listeners could do to help to tackle climate change, what would what would that be? I think it's really, I suppose, probably fly less because that seems to be such a big um, cause of emissions. So that's that's clearly. Um, I mean, I mean, I confess, I fly quite a bit with the, with the job. I mean, I think it's self evident that, that, that having place like working in places like Bangladesh, that one's been on a plane. Um, but that the emissions are so high from aviation that it's something that's really going to have to be thought about very hard. And but it's also very very difficult because of a sort of our globalized world. I mean, my wife comes from the United States as well, so it's like so and then many people that I know have again sort of these kind of. Uh, relationships between people from different continents. Um, so it, it, I think flying has to really be thought about. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a, there's a great challenge there um, for the kind of world we live in, which is sort of based around flying to some degree. Uh, and just staying on that vein, what, what, what are your opinions of carbon offsetting? Um, carbon offsetting, well, I think we... we, we I think that it's fine as long as you actually do achieve the offsetting. I suppose I am actually very sceptical of carbon offsetting in that what are you actually paying for and will it really make any difference whatsoever? So I'd like, you know, so clearly we need to have confidence in what we're buying into when we offset that we really are um, soaking up carbon 
to that amount. Um, and, and, and I don't actually have that at the moment. Okay, we've got two last questions and they're a bit more fun. So if you had to pick, would you pick cat or dog? And can you briefly explain why? I'd pick dog. <laughs> uh, actually, um, because I find dogs are kind of, well, they're, they're animals I can relate to. I really find cats um, a bit harder to read than dogs. Dogs just seem to love you. Cats are much more... Uh, take you or leave you. They they might they might be quite nice when they want to be fed, uh, and then they don't couldn't care less. <laughs> Unpredictable. I'd describe Unpredictable. cats as yeah. Mm. Unconditional love of a dog as well. I think. <laughs> um, and finally, what was the first album that you owned? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. Amazing. Yeah, was oh, the first. That's album. a good answer to have. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Professor Robert Nichols for his time and his interesting insights into sea level rise. And thank you for listening.